0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. When I ask if you would, define find in your copy of Scripture Hebrews chapter nine. Uh, as as I plan sermons and kind of work through a text, especially when we're working through books of the Bible, try to look at what's a manageable paragraph or section to deal with in Scripture, and. Uh, in this text, it's kind of an extended text. Uh, I mentioned last week that the author has a, a pretty basic theme, primary theme, from chapter eight, verse one, all the way to through chapter ten, verse eighteen. And so that's the section we're going to cover: is nine eleven through ten eighteen. Two sermons in that in that one section, that one series of thoughts. What I'd like you to do is something I, I don't necessarily ask you to do a lot when I preach. I want you to read along with me, but I want you to listen for a recurring theme. There's a reason we're dealing with such a large chunk of Scripture at one time, because there's a, an interactive idea that runs kind of like a thread through 9-11, from 9-11 through ten eighteen. So I'd like you, as we're reading along, as you're reading along, to try to pick up what is it that is the primary theme of this section that the author wants his readers to grasp. So we'll begin. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force, as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin ...by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Don't get afraid. I'm not going to preach much longer than I typically do. I'm going to try to deal with every word and every paragraph and every section of that section of scripture that we just read Did you catch the recurring theme? Of course, sacrifices and blood are mentioned. But the the thing that struck me in reading and preparing this message was the theme, once for all. In three specific areas at different times, that, that kind of concept is mentioned. Once for all, Jesus came to do something once that had been done over and over and over and over again for centuries in the Old Testament. In fact, if you go back and think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, they had to bring lambs and goats perpetually. Constantly they were bringing lambs and goats and bulls for sacrifices. In fact, if you go back to one of those uh, Passover weeks, okay, when the people of Israel would gather in Jerusalem for that week where they would celebrate uh, God's rescue of them from Egypt and they would bring their offerings. It's estimated that during some of those Passover weeks, 300,000 lambs would have been sacrificed for the worship of the people. In fact, that would have meant that the blood that was sacrificed, there were, they were cha- channels made in the ground, so that the blood that was sacrificed from those lambs would have drained out through those channels and turned the brook Kidron red. That's gruesome. That's, that's something that is gross. That is not something that, that you and I, if we're thinking about worship, that's, that's not the way you and I would want to experience our worship of God, having to have all of the, that slaughter take place. Why is it that the Old Testament was so gruesome and bloody and brutal? His commentary on Hebrews in this section of Scripture. R. Ken Hughes puts it this way. He says, sin must bring the forfeiting of life. Sin demands death. The Old Covenant sailed on a sea of blood for two vast reasons. First, to emphasize the seriousness of sin. The Bible takes sin seriously more than any other religious scripture. Sin alienates one from God. Sin is rooted in the hearts of humanity. Sin cannot be vindicated by any self-help program. Sin leads to death and it will not be denied. The second reason is the costliness of forgiveness. Death is the payment. It will either be Christ's life or ours. The great contrast that the writer of the book of Hebrews establishes here and really brings this part of this book to a conclusion in terms of his argument is that the Old Testament system is perpetual. It's ongoing. It had to be something that took place over and over and over again. Jesus is not. Jesus' death on the cross is once, once for all time. Remember the argument, what's going on in the book, the people who are reading the letter to the the Hebrews were tempted to turn away from Christ whom they they had accepted and go back to previous patterns of worship, go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system and the rituals and the rites and the the offerings. And what the author is telling them is, listen, you don't need to go back because what happened back there, had to happen over and over and over again. What Jesus did, he did once. Once for all time, once for all of us, once for our redemption and salvation. So we're going to find three truths that come from these three kind of places where the writer draws on that theme, once for all. Here's the first truth. Jesus entered once for all time. He went where we could not go. What is our longing As humans, Our longing as humans is to have fulfillment, is to have some place where we can find respite. Nearly every worldview has a place that would identify somewhat as heaven. Maybe it's nirvana, maybe it's a place of blissful existence, maybe in Islam it's like paradise, or or in Mormonism it's some kind of concept along those lines. In Christianity that place is called heaven. It's a place where we hope that what is there is better than what is going on here. There is a place called heaven, and it's where God resides. And if you've heard anything about it, you want to go there. That's a place we want to enter, but we can't go there. We're not allowed by rite and ritual. We're not allowed by behavior and deed to enter into into heaven. You and I can't go in heaven. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. They couldn't go to the place where God's presence dwelt and, and rested. They had to go through priests. And to bring sacrifices, they had to bring offerings. And then on the Day of Atonement, that's the only day anybody could enter into the Holy of Holies. So you can't just go there, and we certainly are not allowed to just go to heaven. You and I aren't going to wake up one day and say, I'm going into the presence of God in heaven, and I'm going to go there based on my own deeds of righteousness. So we can't enter there. We don't have right to enter there, not by our own goodness. But Jesus entered where we could not go once for all time symbolically he went with his blood. He went with the sacrifice that he had offered. He went to the heavenly temple, the heavenly holy of holies, and offered sacrifice so that you and I could enter into forgiveness. And why did he do that? Because our consciences can't be cleansed by Old Testament rituals and patterns. Chapter 9, verse 9 says that the old sacrificial system cannot purify our consciences. But Jesus, by extension, what he's done, look at 9 verse 14. What Jesus has done, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What Jesus did is he went into the eternal places where we couldn't go, went into heaven, so we could go there forever. And he went there, the reason he did that is so that he could cleanse us from dead works. What are the dead works? working through the Old Testament sacrificial system. Those are dead works. You could bring as many lambs, as many rams, as many bulls, as many offerings, tithes, and giving as you wanted to in the Old Testament. They didn't secure one's salvation. They expressed repentance. They expressed confession. And God did cleanse in that moment and circumstance, but they weren't able to secure eternally. What are our dead works today? Folks, I love that you're attending church. I love that you're giving offerings. It's wonderful. It's wonderful that we pray prayers and it's wonderful that that we do many things. But if we're doing any of those things, any of those things, to try to earn our way into heaven, it, it, it won't work. They're dead. They're not able to get us there. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough to get my way and to earn my way into heaven. So what does Jesus do? He went where we couldn't go. So that he could purify us from the dead works that maybe we're relying on to get into heaven. Trying to clean ourselves and and make ourselves right and righteous. What's beautiful here is that he says he's going to purify our conscience from dead works. So that we can serve the living God. We don't serve God to get to heaven. We serve God because we've been given the opportunity to go to heaven. We don't serve for our salvation We serve from our salvation. In other words, the only way that anything we do is worthwhile to God at all is if it flows out of the redemption we've already experienced in Christ. Jesus went where we couldn't go to give us the right and privilege of eternal life. And he did so through the shedding of his blood. Verse 22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The brutality of the Old Testament religious system, the, the grossness of it, the blood that was shed by lambs and goats and through the priestly sacrificial system is an, is an acknowledgment of the fact that sin can only be cleansed if it's acknowledged that sin is so serious that it costs death. So where, where did Jesus go? He went to heaven, but he went to heaven after he died. Leads us to our second truth. What, what did he do when he went to the cross? Well, Jesus atoned once for all time. He atoned for our sins. He took our place. Notice what it says later on in chapter 9. If you'll pick up with me in, uh, in verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. It's Jesus. He didn't offer himself repeatedly. Um, As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood on his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Jesus doesn't offer himself repeatedly. That's why, as Protestants, we don't celebrate with, with crucifixes. We don't wear crosses where Jesus is still hanging on the cross. That's why, when we observe the Lord's table, we don't believe that, that the, the Lord is present and atoning for our sins in, in the moment. Like, Catholic Mass carries with it the idea, when you go to Mass, you're eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus and re-experiencing the atonement all over again. I don't believe that's necessary. He doesn't have to die all over again. It's why our cross has Jesus not on it. And, and our tomb, thank goodness, the tomb, he's not in the tomb either. We sang about that. That, that living hope song is encouraging there, right? Because Jesus is not present in the tomb. The, the picture there is he doesn't have to repeatedly offer himself. He's not coming back again to die on the cross. He doesn't have to die on the cross ever again. He did that once. Notice the argument. Verse 26, "...for he would have had to suffer repeatedly." Since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once, once for all time, for all the at the end of the, all the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's atonement. He paid for what you and I couldn't pay for on our own. Notice how that's described later on. Just as is, is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, notice that word bear. It carries with it the idea of atonement. Jesus atoned once for all time. Because what we couldn't become, the atonement for our own sins, Jesus could become. He could suffer for sins. See, the the issue is this. The only way sin can be cleansed is if someone is holy enough to wipe our sins away. You and I could try to pay for our sins. We, We could try to pay our own sacrifice. We could try to give our own life, but it wouldn't really cover our sins because we're not perfect. Even if an amount of giving or offering or sacrifices would be sufficient to cover some of our unrighteousness, even if that were possible, we're not righteous at the outset. So it would be like God accepting from the hand of sinful, wicked people something to cleanse sinful, wicked people. And so it doesn't work. God is supremely holy. The very first song that our praise team sang, you had that refrain of holy, 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 and all of our sin is an affront to the holiness of God. Nothing we can bring to God will atone for our own unrighteousness. Not length of time in atoning for our sin. There's no such thing as purgatory, where we eventually pay our sins off by suffering so much, because we would enter purgatory still sinful. And so sinful people can't atone for their own sinfulness. But Jesus can because Jesus never sinned. Jesus is fully, completely righteous. He is the holiness of God embodied in human flesh. So when he went to the cross to bear the sins of many, to atone for sins, he can wash all of our sins away because he alone is able. He did what we were not able to do. He did this once so we wouldn't have to face the judgment. Notice the way that the text describes it just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Folks, there's something that's going to happen in your life that you can't avoid. You can go to a doctor, and you can, uh, a doctor can tell you to change your diet. He can put you on medication. He can tell you to exercise. There are all sorts of things that you can do to prolong your life or to have a healthier existence while you're living. But every single person here is going to die. There are only a few occasions in Scripture where death was stopped or delayed. Uh, The only one that I can recall that that it's obvious that someone was taken away would be Enoch in the Old Testament and Elijah, where Enoch was not and he went with God and Elijah was taken up into heaven. Only instances where death was ever, maybe didn't happen in the case of someone. Even the resurrections that took place, Jairus' daughter and Lazarus in the New Testament... They still died after they were resurrected. Even Jesus, folks, he died. He physically died. Every single person is going to die. One day you're going to die. I hope it's not anytime soon. For me or for any of you. I hope death is not in our immediate future. But when you stand before God on your death day, you're going to face judgment. What are you going to face judgment for? Not really for how much money you had or how successful you were in life. Uh, You're going to face judgment for whether or not your sins were dealt with. That's the only thing that's going to matter when you stand before God. The only thing, the only issue at stake is whether your sins have been cleansed and forgiven. That's the only thing that matters. And Jesus went to bear your sins so that you wouldn't have to stand before God and bear the judgment for your sins. Because I'll tell you this. When you die and stand before God, it will be too late to do anything about your sinfulness. I came across a story this week in my study about a gentleman, a young man, who had come to a tent revival. He had actually arrived there after the tent revival was finished. The evangelist was picking up the tent pegs. He was putting the tent away. He was getting ready to leave and go on to his next Uh, scheduled place and this young man came up to to this man he didn't know he was the evangelist but came up to him and he said what do I need to do to be saved the evangelist turned and looked at the young man and he said well it's too late son and the the young man said it's too late too late because the services are over and, 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 and I can't get saved and the evangelist turned and looked at him and said no son it's too late because Jesus has already done everything that you need to do in order to be saved the finished work of Jesus on the cross is what needs to be done for your salvation to take place. He went on to tell him that he could be saved right then and there because of what Christ had already done. But, beloved, let me tell you this. It's too late when you die. If you are are anticipating, I, I, I'll get that settled next week. I, I, I'll, I'll get that figured out, you know, a year from now when I don't have all these other things to worry about. I, I'll put off Trusting Jesus uh, for a month or or for a year. If you wait until you die, it's too late. The only time for us to know that we've experienced forgiveness and repentance and life and the atonement that Jesus offered is now. Because one day we're all going to face judgment. The third truth is this. Jesus offered what? He offered a sacrifice. A single sacrifice he offered himself as a sacrifice once. Once. Because what we couldn't offer, Jesus offered. See, you and I might might try to make a bargain with God. God, I'll give you my life if you'll give me salvation. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way because your life is not good enough, my life is not good enough, to atone for our, our own sins. So Jesus did that. Look at chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 10. And By that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Jesus offered something precious and pure. It it was His blood. It was His precious life that is sufficient for the cleansing of our sin. Peter put it this way. He said, we're not redeemed with imperishable things like silver or gold, but we're redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus. It's the only thing sufficient to bring about our salvation. It's sufficient because it is sufficient for any and all who would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior through faith and repentance for them to be saved. Previously in in chapter 9, there's this phrase, bear the sins of many. And some have construed that to, to argue that Jesus only dies for some. Even John Calvin, in his, his commentary uh, uh, on, on the book of Hebrews, he, you, he translated the word many as something that illustrated that Jesus died for all. Let me make this very clear Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient for all people to come to know him as Lord and Savior. But the reason the phrase is, he will die for many or he will be a substitute for many, is because Jesus' death on the cross is only efficient to save those who will trust in him as Savior and Lord. Folks, he can save the Urdu peoples who are an unreached people group, and he can save people in Central Europe who have never yet heard the gospel, and he can save people in Wilkes County, North Carolina, who have heard the gospel. But the only way his salvation, his death on the cross, saves is if we put our faith and trust in him alone as our Savior, because His body is the only one sufficient to bring about salvation, to, to be a sacrifice for our sins. Why did He do all this? What, what is it that this drives us to? Well, Christian, it drives us, first of all, to be encouraged. In, in the last part of chapter 9, it said Jesus is going to save those who eagerly wait for Him. I remember when I was a young kid, and teenager, I didn't want Jesus to come back anytime soon because I had my life to live. Some of you may have experienced some kind of thought process like that. I'll be honest with you. I'm 43 now. I, I'd be happy if he'd come back this afternoon, tomorrow. Anytime he wants to come back, I'm ready. I'm waiting for him to return. I was talking to one of our church members after the 930 service. And she was telling me that, that her granddaughter was learning in Iwana on Wednesday nights that Jesus is coming back. And she was telling her grandmother, don't you know that Jesus is coming back? That makes me so excited. Does that make you excited? Uh, I don't think I was thinking quite like that when I was her age. But she's excited that Jesus is coming back. I am too. Do you know why I'm excited that Jesus is coming back? Because Jesus is waiting for something too. Chapter 10 verse 13 says that Jesus, it's a quote from Psalm 110. Jesus is waiting until his enemies are put under his feet as a footstool tell you something. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to die on a cross again. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to ride a a donkey uh, humbly through the streets of Jerusalem. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to be spit upon by the crowds and the, the Romans and the Jewish people who hate him or anybody who hates him. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to hang on a cross again. When Jesus comes back, the Bible says he's going to come back on a horse, a white horse, signifying that he is going to fully fulfill the promise of his inaugurated kingdom that began some 2,000 years ago. When Jesus comes back, he's going to save those who are waiting for him. Listen, our world is messed up. There are all kinds of things that, that trouble us and bother us. And, and legitimately, they affect the way we live our lives. And, and so that, that's okay. But when Jesus comes back, those things are not going to matter anymore because he's going to be the one in charge. They're not going to be political tensions and wars and fightings. Jesus is going to set up a kingdom that lets us know he rules. And that encourages us, believer. It encourages us because he did something that lets us experience the joy and the hope of his return. That's encouraging. There's also a warning there. A warning that we need to be ready for his return. We need to be ready for Jesus to show up. In Christian, that means... There's, there's some intentionality to, to the writer of the book of Hebrews. The latter part of chapter 10 through chapter 13 is exhortation, it's material designed. To say to the church, here's Jesus. Here's the Jesus that you need to worship. And here's what we do now. Here's how we respond. And we're going to spend a good bit of time the next several weeks and months. Working through what do we do as a church to be ready. To be ready for the coming of Jesus. To be ready as Christians awaiting his return. To be ready living out our faith. And so we need to be ready. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's no amount of work or effort or energy that you can do. To be ready to meet Jesus. Jesus has already done all that work. I was talking with some people over the last several weeks. Sharing the gospel with them. Encouraging them to put their faith and trust in Jesus alone. And in a couple of weeks on Easter Sunday. I'm going to tell you some of their stories. Some of kind of how those conversations went. And remind you how gloriously wonderful it is. When we put our faith and trust in Christ alone. Some of those conversations prior to salvation, went something like, I'm trying to make myself right. I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to, to be perfect. Folks, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves of our own sin. There's nothing we can do to be right enough and perfect enough for God. Let me illustrate that with two pictures as we close our morning worship today. First picture is from classical literature. Um, in Shakespeare's work, Macbeth, there's this image where Lady Macbeth had participated in the assassination of King Duncan. And maybe you remember in high school having to read that. Maybe some of you played that. You, you were a part of a, a performance uh, where you watched that take place. And in one of those segments, Lady Macbeth is kind of standing there and she's rubbing her hands together. And in the text, she was rubbing her hands together for more than a quarter of an hour. And she's saying this, Will these hands never be clean? she could never get rid of the smell of the blood on her hands, washing over and over again, rubbing them together, begging that the smell of blood would go away because she had participated in the assassination of another human being. And even, even if she could have washed the physical blood stains off her hands, she could have never washed the psychological pain of knowing that she participated in murder off her hands. She could have never washed away the moral guilt that she carried. She couldn't wash that stain away. Beloved, I'm afraid there are too many people in our world today, people right here in Wilkes County, North Carolina, who exactly what they're doing is they're trying to wash their own sins away. They're trying to cleanse themselves of their own unrighteousness. They're trying to do a little better today than they did yesterday. They're trying to be a little more like perfect than they were the week before And just as futile as Lady Macbeth's attempts to wash the blood off her hands, that's how futile our attempts are at making ourselves perfect before God. Second image is this. I came across a story that gives the hope where Lady Macbeth gives the warning. A doctor in the United States was a generous man, treated people, had a private practice, treated and cared for those in his private practice. And so when he died... He had left a ledger book behind to kind of show who had paid him and who had not paid him and all the bills that were due. And in that ledger book, as his wife was working through the list of people that this doctor had cared for and prescribed medicine for and treated, there were some that they would come across and and he would have written above their bill, forgiven, too poor to pay. And he had written that in, in red ink. To, to signify that that bill was done, was completed. Well, the doctor's wife was not quite as kind and generous as the doctor was, and after his death and after his funeral, she took that ledger book to a court of law, and she wanted to bring a lawsuit against those individuals who had not paid their bill and try to get them to pay their bill. So she stood before a judge, and the judge asked her this question. She, he said to her, Is the handwriting on the ledger book your husband's? The one that's in the red ink, is that your husband's? She said, yes, it is. And the judge looked at her and said this. Then there's not a court in the land that can touch those whom he has forgiven. What we need is not better soap. What we need is not more perfection. What we need is not to do better. And try harder. What we need is a God who will say to us, you're forgiven, you're too poor to pay. Because he's not too poor to pay. Jesus is the only way that we can be ready for eternal life. Jesus is the only way we can be ready for heaven. I would beg you, if you're here today, and you're trying on your own to be righteous, You're trying on your own to get to God. Please stop. Trust in Jesus alone. He's the only one that can forgive. He's the only one that can give life. He did it once some 2,000 years ago so that forever and today you and I can be cleansed and be forgiven. I promise you there's nothing better that you'll ever receive than the gift of eternal life through Christ. If that's you today you need Jesus, I would love nothing more than to talk to you at the invitation. If you're not comfortable responding at the invitation, that's okay. I'll be in the hallway. Pull me aside. I I couldn't spend my time any better than sharing with you how you can receive the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. Would you stand with me? Father, we come to you, and we freely admit that we are not good enough. Lord, I can't pay for my own sins. Can't atone for my own unrighteousness, can't wash my hands or wash my body or wash my soul clean enough so that you'll accept me. But I'm thankful, Lord God, that you knew that. Thankful, Lord God, that you looked down upon us in our poor, sinful, sin-sick situation. And you said, even though Chris is too poor to pay, I've paid his bill through the precious blood of your son Jesus. Lord, I know that's true for all of us here in this room. I know you died so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. I pray if there's one or several here today that are trying on their own to get to God, I pray that you convict them. I pray that you would show them that their efforts are futile. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help them to know that you alone provide the way for their forgiveness to be purchased. Heavenly Father, As we as Christians bask in the wonderful truth that our sins have been washed, you've paid our bill, may we worship you and glorify you appropriately in thanks and in gratitude for what you've done for us through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.